Welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast, a show about planning for, responding to, and recovering from emergencies. I'm Stuart Walker, and on today's show, I'm speaking with Station Officer Joff Van Eck from the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, located in Melbourne, Australia. Joff has a passion for road accident rescue. In 2011, Joff conducted research into rapid extrication of time-critical patients involved in motor vehicle accidents. Links to this report can be found in the show notes. During the interview, Joff talks about rapid extrication techniques used in Norway, as well as Norway's Interdisciplinary Emergency Medical Cooperation course, which focuses on enhancing liaison and cooperation between first responders. Joff Vanek, welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Joff, you started your career in South Australia. Is that uh, yes, yes. I started as a volunteer with the uh, SA Country Fire Service when I was 16 and um, started working in their communication centre, their state operations centre, um, when I was 18. And uh, so we did the call receipt and dispatch for the whole state and uh, deployed aircraft to incidents and answered uh, all the uh, triple O calls for the uh, state of South Australia. So where did your passion for emergency management come from? Uh, the passion was uh, r- uh, around the family. So um, uh, my yeah, mother and father were involved with emergency services for over 30 years and my two brothers are, are still um, involved heavily in, in South Australia as well and I've uh, ended up in Melbourne. And in 2011, you completed the, uh, or you completed an Emergency Services Foundation scholarship on rapid extrication of time-critical patients involved in motor vehicle accidents. What made you choose this topic? Uh, so this topic was, um, I've always had a passion around uh, vehicle collisions and, and probably the trauma side of things, uh, looking at if I wasn't a firefighter, I'd probably be a paramedic kind of thing. So it's um, definitely a passion of mine. Um, it probably all stemmed um, at the age of 16, I actually lost my father in a vehicle accident. So that was something that was probably pretty close to our family. Um, and it was probably not so much looking at the technical side of rescue, but um, you know the injuries that occur to people and also the after effect on the family, on the community and the, the ripple effect, I guess, that happens with um, with any trauma event. All of your research and recommendations are from a time-critical point of view. So can we start with defining some of those points? In particular, your report talks about the golden hour. So do you know where that came from and, and what's its significance? So the golden hour is um, it's one of the probably most debated things around the trauma world um, and also in regards to, I guess, extrication um, from vehicle accidents. So some people stick to it fairly, uh, I guess, strict um, in that way. But the thing that I found through this research was basically that we need to get basically sick people to hospital as fast as we can. So not p- putting a definite time on it, but just having that knowledge that we really need to get them to definitive care quickly. Joff, your report also highlighted the concept of the Platinum 10 Minutes, which is something I hadn't heard of before. So what is that trying to describe? Uh, The Platinum 10 Minutes was something I found that uh, they used in the United Kingdom. Loosely, we use it here, um, but we just don't call it the Platinum 10 Minutes. They put a nice name around it. But um, basically, it's just when you've got a time-critical patient, they get to the point, I guess, in any extrication that the paramedics on scene are going to tell us that things aren't going so well for the patient and we really need to get them out. And generally, we've got five to ten minutes to basically do a, a rapid extrication. So it's it's by by default having that 
backup plan, that rapid extrication pathway that we can get people out quickly. Okay. And in your experience, do you manage to get most patients released within that time frame? Um, it, it really depends on the situation. We, we often, you know, follow the direction of the, uh, the medics that are on scene. And if they do say generally that we need someone out pretty quickly, we can do things probably, uh, I wouldn't say not so much by the book, but we have to do what we do to get the patient out. So they've got the you know the best chance of survival. Yeah, and I imagine it's a bit of a trade-off then between trying to do it you know in you know uh, in the prettiest way possible as opposed to trying to get someone out in a most rapid way. Possible. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's very similar to I guess any firefighting that we we've definitely got our you know our stand operating procedures that we follow and um, the equipment that we use. But sometimes you know if, if that time that seconds that count between getting someone's someone to live, you need need to do what you need to do. Indeed. Your report highlighted the importance of rapid extrication techniques. Can you describe what are rapid extrication techniques? Absolutely. So the the basic thought behind the rapid extrication technique was um, returning any vehicle that's been in a high-speed collision. So we're talking anything, you know, 60 to 100 kilometres an hour that's been had a significant impact. It's actually reversing what's happened in that collision to return the vehicle to its normal state basically where if you can imagine someone's in a car normally and they're sitting in it and they're quite comfortable if we return that vehicle back to that position they've got a greater chance of or for us to get them out easier so instead of them being crumpled up with metal surrounding them and and being physically trapped we turn it back to what it was and then we go about our extrication so so traditionally or the techniques a lot of rescue units use here in australia is We'll look at a vehicle that has been involved in a collision. We'll then try and open that vehicle up using spreaders, cutters, rams. Yep. Is the rapid extrication technique is something different to that? Yes, absolutely. So, and it's it, remembering this was back in 2011, things have evolved quite a lot in Australia. So, moving back to that time, yeah, it was traditionally we did a lot of um, extrications just using the tools that we had, and particularly. It's effectively like how we use the rams. So we used to do a lot of um, uh, dash rolls and dash lifts where we actually move the dash off the patient to free the legs so they can be removed. What Norway went about was, especially particularly this was brought about because of rural areas. They had limited resources, they had rescues on scene, and um, one of the interesting jobs I actually went to there was in a rural setting and they only had one rescue truck on scene that had the the cutting gear and it was able to do the extrication. But the basic thought behind the rapid extrication is you put basically chains around one end of the vehicle and chains around the other end, make relief cuts, and as I mentioned before, you pull the vehicle back to its original state. So in these rural incidents, they've even used tractors. They've they've used them as as an anchor at the rear of the vehicle and then use the rescue truck or the winch on the rescue to then pull the vehicle back to what it was. And as I said, things have evolved quite a lot in Australia, like even to the point where, you know, in Norway they used a lot of chains and that now we've all moved to starting to move to slings and that that are safer for us to use and, and no one's going to be injured. In the whole time that they've been doing it there, they've never had an incident that has there's been any injuries, any any breaking of, of anything um and it's actually been quite successful for the patient outcome. So it's definitely a different technique. And one of the things that really excited me about going there was when you see something that can look quite aggressive, mm. your mind's starting to boggle and thinking, why are these people doing this? Yep. 
you know, is there is there reasons? Is there is there funding cuts? Do they not have enough equipment? And when you actually look at the research, significant data collection over 15 to 20 years that they have had through their top universities, their medical hospitals, you know, it's it's incredible to see the data that they've actually had positive patient outcomes from this. That's, so, that's yeah, it's it's very interesting to um, – it intrigued me a lot and it was one of those things you definitely had to see. Yes, to believe it has been um in new zealand and australia had they have tried to replicate a similar things but one thing we um that i found and the feedback we we got was they actually significantly damaged the vehicles for all training purposes so mm-hmm. they actually dropped them from cranes at a measured height so okay. they replicate exactly 80 kilometers 90 kilometers 100 so it's like it's real life whereas if you take a a vehicle that's in its current state and not damaged, you're you're going beyond. You, you're already in a normal state, so you can't actually do the technique. So, some people have tried it and they they've you know basically didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But the the Norway research they've done they've got quite a systematic approach to their training as well. So so that is good to actually replicate um, in training what you would experience in the field. And often when I was involved in rescue, yeah, we we'd cut up cars that really were just old cars, hadn't been involved in an accident, and the only problem probably opening doors on those was the fact they were full of rust or something like that, which made it challenging. But, yeah, to be able to calibrate your training around specific speed of an accident sounds like a fantastic idea. Absolutely, and it was very interesting because at the time Norway were quite um, advanced in the type of vehicles that they had on the road. So they had a lot of government incentives to bring older vehicles off the road. So when they did training in the the you know the community, everyone was driving new vehicles. Mm. So they were they were brand new European vehicles that were extremely strong, yep. but people were still getting trapped and were still getting hurt. So they had to come up with ways of overcoming or you know creating the rapid extrication, but also overcoming new car technology as well. So there was a lot of different elements that were involved. That yeah, it was yeah something pretty interesting to to see with your own eyes. Talking about new car technology, what are some of the challenges you've observed? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot with new car technology. As I said, people have a greater people have a greater um, chance of survival given all the safety factors in new cars. But as we know, the human body still has to stop. So mm. if we're stopping at 100 kilometres an hour, suddenly there's still going to be serious injuries. And as we've seen recently, there's been a lot of fatalities on our roads. So... For the rescuers side of things, there is a lot to, to come up against. We've got um, vehicles running around, you know, we've got hybrids, we've got alternative gases, we've got all sorts of things running there. We've got so many airbags, we can't even count them. Um, we do have systems in place, but the technology is moving so rapidly that every day there's a new car. So mm. for us to keep up with it, it's just we have to have a, a, a more – um, holistic approach to rescue and make sure that you know we're staying safe um, that, you know we're keeping the paramedics safe as well and the patients so it's it's quite a challenging field to be in now there's there's different challenges in yeah, for a modern rescuer I guess compared yes. to say you know back in the sort of 70s and 80s where the, the things were quite different um, high fatality rates so it's actually an interesting concept that we've probably actually got more people surviving but concentrating and this is what we've sort of looked at is concentrating on their their level of survivability um and getting them back into the community so yeah it's uh yeah it's definitely some challenges out there now in norway you learned about the interdisciplinary emergency medical cooperation can you explain how this works 
Yes. Yeah, so the TAS course um, was the thing that first brought me into looking at um, for the scholarship. So um, I was put in touch with uh, the lead on the, on the course that actually created it in 1998, um, Jan Einar Anderson, and he worked for the Norwegian Air Ambulance. And basically, to, to sum it up, it's getting all agencies together um, to deal with anything from a small incident to a major hazard in the same way, using the same processes. So everyone's trained the same, same equipment, and depending on the scale of the job, they can have the same approach and come up with the same outcome. So it was really interesting. It's basically an all-hazards approach for emergency services. So it works across more than just rescue then? Absolutely. So um, it's one of the events that um, after I left Norway that happened not long after, um, a lot of people can probably remember the, the Oslo bombing and shooting. Yes. So one of the biggest things that the feedback I got from the guys that I worked with over there was how well the TAS system worked at those incidents. So they had two separate incidents, multi-casualty, um, the trauma hospitals were put under the you know, extreme, um, I guess, duress trying to deal with all these patients. But having fire, ambulance and police all trained the same just made it run so smoothly. So it's actually headed up by the Norwegian Air Ambulance Foundation. So they created the the TAS concept, um, which is basically yeah, the interdisciplinary uh, emergency medical cooperation. So what it focuses on is the, the leadership, preparation, risk evaluation, uh, evaluation, uh, triage, treatment and transport of all patients that are involved in these incidents. So when I w- went there, we went to – so every country town, every major centre, um, it could be going to somewhere like Hamilton, Echuca, um, down at Morwell. And what you do is you get all the police, fire and ambulance agencies from that town. Um, we would have SES involved here and other key stakeholders and they're all trained the same. So I went to a regional town that was right on uh, in country Norway. It was probably similar to a, a town like Hamilton. Um, they got all agencies involved and what they do is they do multiple different um Events. So they'll do something as simple as a, a vehicle collision, two cars head on, and they'll get the ambulance service to arrive first. And then they'll do the same scenario, but they'll get the police to arrive first. And what I noticed most was because they're all trained the same, they get trained in the same medical assessments. So it doesn't matter what agency arrives first, they can all give their communication centers the same information and it's understood by all, all services. And that's actually passed on to the air ambulance, which can make their decisions about dis- dispatching the appropriate resources. So it's ensuring that any everyone on scene is speaking the same language and they have the same operating procedures, they know how to use each other's equipment and the time saving on scene and the confusion that was saved was it, just incredible. So to- does that mean any situation report that was being provided by the police could theoretically be sound the same one that might be given by the fire brigade absolutely. because they're trained the same way. Yep, absolutely. So wow. their primary – they were taught with the primary assessment. It's, it's 30 to 60 seconds where they do a primary assessment of a patient and they do it in the same way that it didn't matter what agency was giving it. Mm. The information is exactly the same and each, each service could see it. So it was incredible to see that they set up these scenarios to 
put the police on scene first, to put the fire brigade, the, the first officer on scene, mm. making an assessment, getting the crew to assess patients. Um, I, I guess we're starting to see that, you know, in Victoria now with EMR. CFA now taking on EMR, people are, are talking the same language now. We've already adopted it with our medical response. Yes. So it was it was bringing that not just for, say, a cardiac event, but it was bringing it back in for all trauma incidents so it doesn't matter what we go to, yeah. that everyone's doing the same thing. So it was pretty incredible. As I said, they start off with small scenarios. It's a two-day course where they basically, you know, set themselves up in a town and they... They, they shut down the town and, mm. and everyone gets involved. And, and it was great just to see them work with each other. They obviously know each other in smaller towns. But say, for example, in the metropolitan area of Melbourne, we for us to train with other agencies very difficult and getting to know them. But once you get to sort of train with each other and get to know each other's um, procedures and equipment and how we work and even as simple as knowing someone's name, mm. That, that, that's the big thing. That it's I, amazing I, how much more smoothly an incident will run absolutely. if you can actually know the other first responder by name. Yep. So the more that they did that, even in the big cities, so they could do an event the same as in country Norway as they would do in Oslo, mm. so in, 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 in a major city. So it was great to see that no matter where the course was uh, given, it was the same. So it was pretty incredible to watch and um, – they, they escalated into a larger incident where they would have a bus rollover or something similar with 20 or 30 patients, the same amount of people, but they had a, a, a great triage system that was put in place. And could you see something like that working in Victoria? Absolutely. I think Victoria now in particular, as I mentioned before, it's, you know, this is uh, 2011, it's, it's seven years ago now. It's um, Victoria's come leaps and bounds since then, obviously with the Introduction of Emergency Management Victoria, the agencies coming under one banner, and probably the significant events that have happened since then, we've started to see different events occurring in, in both metropolitan and regional centres, mass casualty events where fire services arriving first, potentially the police, and everyone's having to work together a lot more. So I definitely think we're de- working a lot better now, and we've got a lot of potential to in this you know, in victoria to do to do really good work so yeah it, they're actually seeing a lot of similarities now between what norway were doing then and and what we're starting to pick up now and we have certainly have seen a lot of positives towards interoperability as you say creation of, of emergency management victoria uh joint firefighting recruit courses between mfb and cfa so all these things have got to be got to make for a more joined up service i think yeah absolutely and and, and um as you well know, you know, I was lucky enough to work with yourself and many others over at CFA for 18 months and it, it, it is definitely, um, there are challenges both in the metropolitan and, and country areas that we both have to overcome but um, at the end of the day we're operating on a pretty similar similar way and now involving, I guess, um, Ambulance Victoria with a lot of incidents that we go to, not traditionally just you know your, your trauma events. It's now with EMR as well, so it's starting to get a lot more involvement with each other. So it's yeah, it's really good to see. It is amazing your or the succumbent you did to CFA and the fact that the Country Fire Authority is sending people to the Metropolitan Fire Brigade. The amount of sharing of that knowledge has been just amazing. Uh, I think 
for those of us who've, who've talked to colleagues who've gone, all of a sudden it opens up this whole new world and a whole new understanding of each other's agency. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even like we mentioned before, it's simple things like just getting to know who other people are. Mm. So when you're responding to jobs or you're involved with incident management teams at, at a broader scale that you, you know what different capabilities are and simple thing of knowing someone's name and, and who they are and where they work, it's, it just makes things run a lot simpler. You mentioned in your report that Norway's Air Ambulance is dispatched at the same time as their road accident rescues dispatched, um, particularly for time-critical patients. What are some of the benefits of this approach? The One of the big things that I saw was just the, I guess, how smooth the incident ran. Um, as I said, because they train together and it's actually headed up by the Air Ambulance, there's already that knowledge of what the air ambulance is capable of and vice versa with the the air ambulance crew knowing what the ground crews are capable of as well and what sort of times they're looking at. So the whole idea behind the TAS system actually came about because the medical professionals challenged the fire service and the ambulance service on their long on prolonged on-scene times basically. So their view was that a sick patient needs to be in a trauma hospital getting looked at by a trauma surgeon. We can't tell what injuries are internal, so we need to get them there very quickly. So ultimately it came back on the fire, you know, fire and ambulance services, but what also happened then is the ambulance had to do the same thing. So their idea was, well, if they can get there quicker as well, there's no point doing a rapid extrication if there's no helicopter there to transport someone to a trauma facility some distance away, which is one of the problems I guess we, we face in Victoria. It's a, it's a challenge because of our distance to major trauma facilities. So we now sort of face that same similar problem on the, on the other scale that we can have the top medics respond to incidents and, and our, our ambulance respond, but if we can't get these people out and they're still stuck in the vehicle, there's not a lot we can do for them. So it's really getting them out. That, that's really important. So, But seeing how rapid it is getting the aircraft up just gave you that flexibility in resourcing and, and getting things there quickly. Um, as all services can give the proper sit reps, if you've got the police there first really quickly, they can give that sit rep and they can determine whether the air ambulance is required at that incident yes. or can be diverted to another incident. So, And, and it's not only for, for vehicle collisions. They dispatch for quite a lot of calls. I even went to a, a basically an EMR call, a cardiac event at a racetrack um, when I was there. And uh, we're actually first on scene. And we had loaded the patient and left before any road crews had arrived. There you go. So it, just seeing how quickly that could happen was just incredible. Yeah. So, um, and getting that person to the trauma facility that they needed to be, be at to get the right treatment. So it's, um, yeah, it was very, very quick. Um, and that's one of the things that, has definitely been highlighted through the report the importance of getting not only the the rapid extrication on scene but the rapid transport as well. So that that was one of the big things that uh, that got brought up. So yeah, it's very important. Sounds like they were pretty good hosts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was um, it was actually sensational. They um, got to go on the air ambulance with them and, and observe, which was um, yeah, it was interesting from a a fire and medical point of view, um, particularly, as I said, it was similar incidents like we do with EMRs and see how they operate um, with the fire service as well. So the fire services there do EMR as well. So 
just seeing how what equipment they carry compared to us and what their role is in EMR call and and it was very similar. So, Joff, the the emergency services uh, scholarship is offered every year. Can you tell me a bit about the background of the of the scholarship? Absolutely. So, um, a lot of people don't know about it. So, the Emergency Services Foundation. It was actually established uh, after the 1983 bushfires. So it was actually a public campaign to support emergency services workers um, after Ash Wednesday. There was a lot of people that were affected. Um, there was uh, a loss of life, um, many lives with firefighters that and and family and friends that, you know, they, they lost their lives, their houses, their incomes, and they needed someone to actually help that. So the Emergency Services Foundation was actually established with two key um, areas that they focused on. So that was actually uh, the relief and assistance um, to any Victorian emergency services worker and their families that suffer hardship. The other point that is where the scholarship um, comes into it is actually the funding of research and study by properly qualified persons in emergency services to go and see what other people are doing basically. How can we make our emergency services better in Victoria? So one of the key points with the scholarship is that it's a it's a multi-agency approach. So if, if people are thinking about doing it, it's offered between from their agency heads um, have to obviously support it. So I'd encourage people to definitely look at it every year. It does come out every year and, and for volunteers as well. So there's a volunteer component as well. What they need to do is they need to have something they're really passionate about. They really need to. It can be a, a long process not only for the scholarship but on return and following it up into the future. But find a topic you're really passionate about, approach your direct managers, could be someone in a region or someone that you want to support it, get their support and approach the agency and see if it's something that they would support. So once you get that initial support from your own service, so I, I had great support from um, from the MFB uh, in, and that then got forwarded to the Emergency Services Foundation scholarship panel. So the panel is from every emergency services in Victoria. So as I said, being a multi-agency uh, topic, every agency is going to get something out of it through through their buy-in, I guess. So um, you have to have something that's going to benefit majority of agencies to probably be successful in getting it. I was lucky, obviously, with mine. It, it covered a lot of um, you know fire and rescue, um, which which basically brought in MFB, CFA and, and, and Vic SES. And then also we've, we're looking at the medical side, which has obviously got a, a big buy-in from Ambulance Victoria. And then we've also got Victoria Police who are the combatant authority for this. And, you know, they do the investigations and they, they have a, they, they've got a big say in what happens with vehicle collisions. So they had a lot of interest as well. So it was probably a really good topic to have. But I really encourage people that if they're passionate about something and they want to there's no point sitting around, as we say, you know, sitting around the mess table complaining about it. Yeah. Let's let's see what research you can do. Let's put something together. And and anyone who's done the scholarship is part of the alumni with the um, ESF, and more than happy to help. So they have information nights. You can get our phone numbers, our emails, our contacts. They're all available um, on the website. They can contact us and. Yeah, we can guide them through the process and help them, but I really encourage them that if they do have something they want to do, get that support and this is another avenue. And and I looked at it this way, it's um looking back on it now, it 
it's not necessarily going to always affect your agency as much as others. Um, a lot of mine was focused around regional um, vehicle collisions and distance to hospitals and that sort of thing. So um, although it did involve the metro area in a lot of aspects, it involved regional as well. But then there was that obviously that big medical component of it. So there's a lot of agencies to um, to to bring on board. So it does, and, and looking at people who've done the scholarship in the past, it, it looks like it is important to make sure that whatever topic you choose can be relevant to a number of agencies in order to get the best bang for the buck for them to send you away to learn something and bring new things back. Yeah, absolutely, and it and it's got um, yeah, it has to have benefits for for everyone, and and also have benefits for for the individual personally. Um, if it's something they're passionate about and they think that they can go on further with, I think it's definitely something worth, you know, having that, that personal development as well. I can say, you know, from, from what I got out of it, it's, it's opened a lot of doors for me personally and got that exposure overseas. And I've been lucky enough to, to train people and rescue all, all over the world in, um, in Europe, in, in America, um, in Asia. So it's, you get to have a greater greater knowledge. You build your own knowledge base, which you can bring back to your services, which um, which has been really good. We've had some really fantastic conversations, um, not only in the MFB but with other organisations. As I said, when I went over to CFA um, with Ambulance Victoria, there's a lot of movement in EMV. We've just released new road rescue arrangements that have changed um, how some things are, are operating. There's a lot of movement around the medical. Um, as I said. The, the difference between 2011 and now in our own extrication techniques is, is huge. Um, I talk about vehicle relocation. Basically what that is is if we've got a car that's you know collided with a, a movable object, basically it could be a tree, power pole, a truck uh, and the like, that we'll actually remove it from there so we can safely do the extrication by putting the vehicle into a safe place, returning the vehicle to its, to its state, its original state. So... It's not so much exactly like the rapid extrication technique, but with the techniques that we've got now, we're getting a lot quicker with with getting it back to its original state and getting the patient out quite quickly. So, um, but it, it wasn't something that we did, and as I said, it was quite confronting going to Norway and seeing what they do as far as moving vehicles, and then the thought behind that, and then knowing that eventually we would get there, and we have, mm. we we've caught up. And that, that's, it's not just something in Victoria, it's Australia-wide, it's the adopting from both a medical and technical point of view and bringing those two disciplines together closer um, and looking elsewhere at different things that people are looking at. So, um, yeah, ultimately it was, uh, we go in cycles. We always say in, in the fire service in particular, we go in cycles and it was interesting seeing that techniques that were used in the 60s, 70s and 80s, and you, you speak to people that were in the fire service back then, they go, oh, we used to winch cars and move them with tow trucks. Yeah. And you go, oh, you, go, you can't do that because of the, the spinal injuries. Mm. And then we went through a spinal injuries sort of phase through the 90s and the early 2000s. And now we're back to using those techniques that were from 30 years yeah. ago. So it, it's often a reminder that we never want to forget about old techniques and because it all comes in full circle and if you know about everything and keep an open mind as to you know, how to perform an extrication, it's actually quite relevant now. Yes. It's, um, it's a very interesting space. So, And that's an important thing I think about rescue and you know, it's been a long time since I've worked the rescue but 
often it is quite a, it's quite a mental challenge to work out what to do to, to somehow extricate a patient from a situation. You've got to think laterally in order to come up with a solution. Yeah, absolutely. It's the thing that I love about the rescue. It is a very challenging role. Um, it puts you under, you know, sometimes immense pressure, but it's it's one thing that I've learned from it is keeping things really simple and going back to that core um, core reason we're there, and that's the patient. So it's something that I think has been forgotten over the years, and, and everyone would probably admit that, that we've gone down the road of creating fancy techniques mm. and, and we've got new equipment and all that sort of stuff, and some of the equipment we've got now has just made a massive change and a massive difference to the time spent on scene, which is ultimately our aim, to, to, to lessen that time to get that patient to help. So... But coming back to basics, I always say to people, you've got to come back to basics. Why are we there? We're there for the patient. Yeah. What's best for that patient and how can we help them out? So that's what that's what I learned in Norway. They were really about basically what's best for that patient. Yeah. Let's help them out. Let's get them to the hospital and get them back into the community. Yeah. I'm interested. You, you work at one of the busiest stations in the state and I can see the CBD is about 100 metres from where we are. How many calls a year are you doing here? Uh, most of the fire stations in the CBD, we believe, are around probably the four and a half thousand calls plus. It, it's a very, very busy and ever-changing environment, as you can see around us. There, every building it has a crane on it. It's um, the challenge for for not only you know the fire service, but from from our point of view, where we work here at um, at Carlton, there's definitely you know there's a rescue space that's changing as well. Mm. So it's um, it's very different in the metro metropolitan area now what we're finding is the speed of the incidents is is perhaps lower in in certain parts of the the area but we've got a lot of freeway systems mm. that are carrying a lot of different traffic not only the smaller vehicles now but what we're finding is a lot of the incidents involve heavy vehicles um and through no fault of their own it's just the sheer volume of traffic yeah eventually something's going to go wrong. So, um, so I'm interested to know then, given you're doing, you know, this station's doing 4,000 calls a year, how do you keep relevant with your rescue training? Uh, a lot of the, it's it's a lot of it's just done on station and, and we have a lot of experienced people that have a lot of, as, yeah, I met you before, we talk about techniques from the, the 80s and 90s and we have people around that were around then and they have that, 30 to 40 years experience of of operations that they can pass on and and i think there's nothing nothing beats sitting around the mess room table and and discussing those finer points about different incidents that we attend and like anything the different complexities that they bring and that's definitely a challenge you know we have a, a very new um workforce coming through and especially as you know in the cfa as well it's expanding and yeah it's keeping that you know learning from everyone we can. Um, and I think the accessibility, you know, since we've joined the job with the internet as well, like you can take some things with the internet with a grain of salt, um, but there's some really valuable information that people can share um, to have discussion points about, to do tra different training. And it's really, I think, broadened. And I, and I found with my experiences overseas, it gave me contacts that I'd ne you'd never have. 30 years ago it would be very hard to make those contacts whereas now with social media with different websites you've got that straight away you've got that contact with people overseas that 
you, you never had and you can just build those relationships of professional development for yourself, for your agency and yeah basically making everything you know what we do better and I think we can you know we always encourage you know people we get new firefighters on station we encourage them to to, to learn their craft in their first four years and then start to you can see that they all develop their different passions for different areas of the job and you know we've got some particularly in the rescue area we've got a lot of a lot of changes a lot of new things happening and a, a lot of new people and yeah it's a really exciting time. Station Officer Joff Van Eck, thank you for joining me on the Emergency Management Podcast. All right, thanks, Stuart. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more about the topics discussed, go to emergencymanagementpodcast.com. Please also subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at feedback at emergencymanagementpodcast.com. I'm Stuart Walker. And you've been listening to the Emergency Management Podcast. Bye for now.